This might seem like an obvious question, but I don't know if you've ever thought about it. But why in the world did Jesus leave this whole job, the mission, to us? <laughs> what was he thinking, right? Have you ever think about that? Like, you got Jesus, fully God, fully man. He's perfect in everything that he does. He knows exactly what to say at the right time. He was fully surrendered to the leading of the Holy Spirit, turning water into wine, walking on water, healing, casting out demons. He just had all this power, this ability. He was this, this the perfect blend of the spiritual gifted person. And then he leaves, throws us the keys, and he says, you got it from here. <laughs> like, why would you do that? Why would you do that? I mean, Jesus, why, why, why the church? You know, like, couldn't there have been a better way to, to bring in God's redemptive plan for the, for the universe? I mean, couldn't, couldn't he have sent angels that would have been much more articulate than, than us? I mean, could, couldn't he have spared us even all of the, the messiness and the complexity of trying to live out church life with fallen, broken, sinful human beings? I mean, couldn't he have stayed? I mean, he, he resurrected. He was given his new body. Couldn't he just have stayed on earth and led the church, been our, our true pope? Couldn't he have just stayed? But that's not, that's not what he did. That's not what he did. And in, in fact, in his own words, he said, it's better that I go. It's actually better that you guys, for the next 2,000 plus years, that you guys take over. I think that really prompts us to sort of ask the question, like what, what exactly did Jesus have in mind when he uh, decided that, that the continuation of his ministry was going to be the church? What did he have in mind by that? You know, there's a lot of confusion about church, I think. Sometimes I, I think church is sort of the least um, palatable selling point for non-Christians. You know, they're like, yeah, Jesus, he seems pretty cool. Bible, I can get behind that. But those Christians, man, they're just, a lot of them are hypocrites and they're judgmental and blah, blah, blah. And it seems like sometimes the, the church is like our biggest flaw in the whole thing. And so we got to ask ourselves, well, well, what did Jesus have in mind for the church? What was the church supposed to look like? It's something we constantly have to be asking ourselves. We also have to ask ourselves, what is a church? Like, what is a church? What, what is that? I mean, because nowadays it's really confusing, especially with COVID, right? The rise of technology. Like, is the church mean that you just subscribe to a YouTube channel or does the church mean that you follow somebody's Instagram? Does the church mean that you, you know, sign up to something online? Like, what does it mean to be part of a church? And how do we gauge if a church is healthy, if a, if a church is successful, if it's, if it's fruitful? I mean, what do we use? Do we use the three Bs? You guys ever heard of the three Bs? Buildings, butts, and budgets? You know, it's like, is it, is it how big the building is and how many um, bottoms, I should say, my wife would tell me to use in front of the kids, um, bottoms are in the seats and how many, how big of a budget, like, are those the metrics that we use to gauge a healthy church? These are questions that, guys, we have to be asking every year, maybe even more. We need to clarify what we're doing here, why we're giving of our time, why we're giving of our tithe, why we're giving of our attention and our affection and our relationship to one another. Like, what is the purpose of that? And, and what, what is it all for? If we don't ask these questions, there's a vacuum that is left with obscurity that will quickly be filled by all kinds of good things. Every dead church died on the road of, of hundreds and hundreds of good things. Programs, initiatives, you name it. All good things. But were they the main thing? Were they the thing that we were actually asked to do as a church? So we have to constantly keep our eye on the ball. Now, I'm not going to lie. So I forgot that we were turning a year old until like two weeks ago. And, and I think my wife reminded me, hey, you know, it's been a year. 
I was like, oh man, we gotta make a video and make a cake, right? Um, so, so that was all kind of a rush, but, but as I was anticipating this Sunday with you guys and even next Sunday and just discussing sort of the vision and where are we going next and what do we wanna focus on, I started to get really stressed out. Because I'm like, oh man, it's my job to like get up there and think of all these new ideas and roll out something really exciting that you guys are all gonna go, woo, let's do that. And, like, and I just felt like, I still, I don't know, that's, that's stressful. I don't know what to say. I mean, I can't, I'm not, I can't think of anything. And then God just kind of reminded me, he's like, hey, Sam, you know, it's really not your job to invent the church. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I don't want us to think about church like, like art. I think some people think about church like art. It's like, it's a blank canvas, and we're just going to make it whatever we feel like it needs to be. And so whatever we dream, you know, we, I hear the word dream a lot when people talk about church ministry. You want to dream together? Let's dream, you know. I'm like, okay. That's, that's art. That's like, let's make something new. Church isn't art. Church is science. You know what science is? Science is where you, you dig into something that already exists, something that has organic life in and of itself. You dig in and you figure out how it works. And then you figure out how to harness it. You figure out how to tap into it. That's what science is. Science isn't about creating something. It's about discovering something that already exists. Okay, ecclesiology, which is the fancy word for the study of the church, ecclesiology is like science. It's like this thing called the church, it already exists. Okay, it already exists. Philippi is a, a organic work of the Spirit that God has already been making and working in. It's not our job to define it or create it or decide. It's our job to dig it up and say, God, what are you already doing? And what have you already said the church is? So that means that if I get up here and give a big vision uh, that's not rooted in a passage of Scripture, then I'm not actually figuring out what the church is. I'm deciding what the church is. One of the things that I love is we, we named our church Philippi, not just because we liked the name, but because I wanted it to c- cement in your head Acts chapter 16. When you think about the word Philippi, I didn't want you to think, oh yeah, Sam gave a sermon one time and we launched about why, and I don't remember what, most of you are probably saying that actually. I don't remember why we named it Philippi, I have no clue. The reason we named it Philippi was because I wanted Acts 16 to be forever cemented in our DNA as a church. Because Acts 16 is is an illustration of what a healthy church looked like. It was just this church that that was sort of this eclectic group that God brought together. Okay, And I wanted for us to remember Acts chapter 16. Philippi, Acts chapter 16. You guys got that? Philippi, Acts 16. And if you ever forget why we're Philippi or what we're doing, go back and read Acts chapter 16. Because the authority of what we're doing is in the scriptures. It's not in some idea that, that we as a leadership had or whatever. It's on the scriptures. So in the same way, I want year, the year 2021 or our year two as, as, as a church at Philippi, I want to cement it to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 16. I want this passage to be the why and the what of what we do moving forward. Not my idea or anyone's idea or this person's idea, but what has God said about the nature of the church, the purpose of the church, uh, what defines health in the church. And so this is going to be a lot of Bible this morning. We're going to look and ring out these 16 verses and, and just for everything that we can get out of them. Because I think the Apostle Paul is giving us a phenomenal framework about what church actually is. And we've got we to get back to that and remind ourselves of that. So Ephesians chapter 4, if you're there, what we're going to do if you're an outline person is we're going to look at six definitions or distinctives of a true church, okay? 
The definition of a true church, actually we'll call it this, we'll call it six marks of a biblical church. Six marks of a biblical church is the way we're going to work through this material. Now let me give you a little bit of background about the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is one of Paul's masterpieces. I mean, it's, it's, it's the Holy Spirit through Paul, okay? but it's really a phenomenal book. It's probably one of my favorite New Testament books. He wrote it when he was sitting in prison. It's one of four prison epistles. And when he wrote it, he really uh, amazingly um, gave it sort of a story arc. The first three chapters are all about who you are in Christ. It's all about your identity in Christ, very theological. The second three chapters is all about what that means and how you live that out. So he gives the declarative, and then he gives the imperative. He wrote it to Ephesus, which was a really a major port city in Asia Minor, which is Turkey uh, today. He wrote it to Ephesus, but really he wrote it to all of the churches in Asia Minor, because Ephesus was basically a, a hub for all of the surrounding churches in the area. So uh, when he, uh, in the book of Acts, when he interacts with the Ephesian elders, he's really interacting with the whole of the Asia Minor area. Okay, so, so he's writing this letter, and he's trying to make extremely and explicitly clear not only the identity of each believer, but the identity of the local church, and why it exists, and what it functions for, and how it should function. And it's, it's, it brings up some amazingly big theological themes that I don't think anybody ever would have thought of on their own, because it's just too outside of our natural thinking. Okay, so six marks of a biblical church starting in verse one. And the first one, if you want to write it down, I'll give them to you and then we'll look at the passage. The first one is a biblical church is made up of believers. A biblical church is made up of believers. In other words, a group of saved, born-again disciples growing out of the riches of gospel life. You might be saying, Sam, no, duh. That's like the most obvious thing you've ever said. A group, a church is made up of believers. Okay, but let me explain why this is important. Look at verse one. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he is calling these guys into a deeper belief of who they are. It's implied here that these men and women are saved, that they have been saved. They've been called into this thing we call salvation. Now, he spent three chapters unpacking what that is exactly. But his point to start is that he is addressing Christians. Now, why am I bringing that up? Okay, It's important for us to remember, as we're defining and trying to remember what we're doing as a church, it's important for us to remember that what we do here on Sunday morning is for Christians. It's for, it's for Christians. This gathering that we do, it's a gathering of the saints. It's a gathering of believers. Uh, a lot of times, churches forget that. And they say, you know, we want to be a place that's open to non-Christians. I want to invite non-Christians. Non-Christians can come in here. They can, they can listen. But we're not going to gear the service to non-Christians. This service, the Sunday morning, the gathering, or the midweek gatherings, or whatever we do as a body, it is, by definition, a group of believers, not a group of like-minded people or spiritually religious people or politically aligned people. It is a group of born-again Christians. Okay, it's a group of born-again Christians. And the way that the New Testament models salvation and discipleship is that people get saved outside the walls of the church, and then they get baptized and grafted into the community inside the church. So the, the measure of our health inside the church, within our body, within our community, will directly determine whether or not we're discipling and actually doing the work of evangelism. Okay, so we are a group of believers 
first. The second thing that he says, the second mark of a biblical church, is a biblical church is gospel-nourished. In other words, it grows out of the riches of gospel life. Look at verse 1 again. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What he's calling them to, what he's calling the Ephesian church to, is to basically become what they are. He's calling them to grow up into what they already are. And again, he spent the last three chapters telling them what they are, the riches that they have in Christ. And the first imperative that comes along says, now act like who you are. Grow up into who you are. The gospel, and this is very important for us, is very core, very DNA for this church. The gospel has to be at the center of what we do. The gospel has to be, a lot of Christians think that the gospel is for non-Christians and for baby Christians. It's something that is the front door into Christianity. But then we move on to really important things like Enoch, or really important things like lineages, or really important things like whether we should speak in tongues. Okay, I'm not saying those things aren't important, but we think of the gospel as sort of the baby thing, and we think of you know, other things as sort of the mature thing. That is absolutely wrong. It's absolutely wrong. C.J. Mahaney said this. He said, Never be content with your grasp of the gospel. The gospel is life-permeating, world-altering, universe-changing truth. It has more facets than any diamond. Its depths man will never exhaust. The gospel for us is not just the front door into the church. It's the front door. It's the whole house. It's the back door. It's everything. The gospel is how we grow as Christians. You know, one of the reasons church plants tend to be pretty healthy at first is because they're absolutely focused on the gospel. They're, they're trying to reach non-Christians. They're dealing with young, uh, young Christians in the beginning stages of their discipleship. So they're very affluent in the gospel, what Jeff Vanderstelt would call gospel fluency. They're speaking gospel truth. And by gospel, I don't mean the four books at the beginning of the New Testament. By gospel, I mean the finished work of Christ Jesus and the complexity of it, okay? Uh, they're, they're speaking that. But then, you know, as a church starts to mature, they start like, well, we should start thinking about other things, buildings, budgets, whatever. And, and they start preaching maybe more about, about holiness or they start preaching more about other things that aren't wrong, but they're not preaching them out of the gospel. They're preaching them as, uh, uh, as an alternative to the gospel, and then churches become legalistic, and churches become ritualistic, and they become traditionalistic. And all of those things ultimately are not the life source of the church. The life source is the finished work of Jesus Christ ministered through the Holy Spirit. That's our life source. If we ever forget that, if we ever stop preaching Christ and Him crucified and, and the, complete, the, the completed work of the cross and the ascension and the resurrection, then we will shrivel and die. We just will. I've watched it happen. I've seen it happen. It is a slow death for the church that stops drinking the milk of the gospel. Now, there's a, there's a confusion about that. Some people think uh, when Paul is talking about uh, milk and meat, that the milk is gospel. And the meat, that's the really important things like Calvinism, eschatology. That's a lie. The meat is a deeper understanding of the gospel. I know a lot of guys that know a lot about eschatology and their soul is dry as a bone, okay? The gospel is what brings us richness and maturity is growing into a deeper understanding of the gospel. And we start to see how end times and eschatology, we see all that actually is part of the gospel. 
right? So, so that's how we grow. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, Peter says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Same language. You notice that? Grow up into salvation. It's already yours. You just grow up into it. But notice that he says you are to drink or long for the pure spiritual milk. A baby naturally longs for milk. That's what it needs. It has everything it needs, all the nutrients, all the vitamins, all the fat, all the richness that it needs. And a baby longs for that. And without that milk, it can't survive. So for us to be a church that will stand the test of time, for us to be a church that will will literally expand the borders of the kingdom of Christ, we have to be connected to that pure spiritual milk. So if you ever get tired of me hearing preaching the gospel, I'm sorry, it's never going to change. We preach essentially one sermon here, (laughs) okay? And that is the finished work of Christ and how that fleshes itself out in our lives. The third mark of a healthy church, or a biblical church, pardon me, a biblical church is one. A biblical church is one. In other words, it's not a group of individuals, It is one spiritual organism eternally intertwined with God's Trinitarian life. You're like, what the heck does that mean? Okay, look at verse 2. A biblical church is one. Verse 2 says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing... Okay, stop. I want you to note in your Bible, either with your eyes or with a pen, how many times Paul uses the word one. Okay? See how many times he uses the word one. With all humility, gentleness, with patience... Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What an amazing passage. What is his point? His point is, first of all, that there is a oneness to the church. You say, well, it doesn't seem like there's a oneness to the church because Christians are always fighting. That's true. That's true. But when you peel back all of the sin and all of the pride and all of the arrogance and all of the assumption and all the misunderstanding, and when, if you were able to remove all of that that has not yet been uh, eschatologically removed, it will all go away at some point, what you would have is a perfectly united organism that is called the church. It is one. And this body here, Christ views this body here as one organism. Now, that's a super unwestern thought, isn't it? In the West, we think of everything through the lens of individuality. Every Disney movie is about someone um, identifying and fulfilling their own individual hopes and dreams. That is not biblical. When you got saved, you were baptized into a community. You were baptized into one single organism. And in Christ, although, yes, you are an individual, and yes, he has an individual relationship with you, but ultimately, your identity is part of a larger organism, and that is called the church. It's interesting, in, in, in Revelation chapter uh, 1 through 3, when Jesus is addressing the churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, etc., he doesn't say, hey, good job, Bill, you know, you're, you're awesome, and hey, Frank, you know, you're, you're kind of a heretic, um, and hey, you know, he doesn't go through the list of individuals. He addresses each church as though it is a single entity. It's kind of terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> so he sees Philippi as a single organism. You're part of this body, and part of that body means in a spiritual dimension, we are all one. We are all one. 
I want you to go back to verse 1 really quick. I want you to see something. Paul, in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. That is a mistranslation. It's not a mistranslation because the people that made the ESV Bible were, were ignorant. It's a mistranslation because we don't have a good English word. The word really should be y'all. It's y'all. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge y'all to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which y'all have been called. It's a plural. Paul's not speaking to individuals. So even though, you know, we get our Bibles in the morning and our coffee and our journal and we're all by ourselves, and there's nothing wrong with that. I encourage that. But we go, what is God going to speak to me today? Okay, there are certain passages where God is speaking to you, but most of the passages are actually spoken to the body. They're spoken to us corporately, which means they need to be applied and interpreted corporately. Which means we need to say, well, this isn't just Jesus speaking to me personally, although there may be some overlap, some application. This is Jesus speaking to the church. He's calling us as an organ, uh, organism to something. We are one. What that means, let me give you some implications. What that means is, and I'm not trying to diss anybody that isn't feel comfortable coming because of COVID right now. I completely understand the moment we're in. But what that means is, in a normal setting, that just tuning into something online doesn't mean that you're actually doing church. What that means is that if you're like that person that's like, church for me is in the woods by myself. No, it's not. That's just being in the woods by yourself. I mean, that's important. Jesus did that. He went and prayed. He had communion with the Father. But that's not church. Don't call it church. Church is the body. Church is people. You can't get around that. And whether you like it or not, you are part of the church. And if you are not connected to a local church, then you're actually not living into something that God has for you, as hard as it may be. That's why it's so important that Christians, when they get saved, they get connected and fused into the unity of a local church. It's so important. I want you to notice, too, that this unity is not created by us, it existed before us and is therefore to be maintained by us. Do you see that? It says, eager to maintain, verse 3, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body. There is one spirit. There is one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. All of that exists whether or not you want to agree that it's there or not. So you can say, oh, I hate every church in Grants Pass and I don't want to be plugged in anywhere and Christians are all hypocrites, but I'm a Christian. You can say that, but the oneness exists whether or not you acknowledge it or not. Because the oneness is Trinitarian. The oneness is eternal. The oneness existed before the heavens and the earth were even created. The oneness exists within the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He has eternally existed in a community. You ever wonder how God can be love? How can he be love? Who was he loving? Sounds weird to say, but he was loving himself. The Trinity was fully and perfectly sustained within the relationship of the Godhead. And when he created man, he created man for the purpose of being united into that pre-existent eternal unity and community. Isn't that cool? So the bride of Christ comes into the unity of the Trinity through what? Through marriage. Just like my wife, she's part of my family now. She is part, my, my parents don't just see me now, they see a son and they see a daughter because we're one, one flesh. In the same way, the bride of Christ has come into the eternal unity and oneness of the Godhead and we will forever live out of it. If you don't believe me, John chapter 17, verse 10 says this, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, all mine, speaking of the church, are yours, all yours are mine and I am glorified in them. 
And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they, listen, that they may be one, even as we are one. So God the Son is talking to God the Father, and his prayer is that his church would be one with each other, subsequently one with him, like him and the Father are one. The oneness is what he's inviting us into. And then he says in 26, I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me in time past, pre-incarnate Christ, before creation, that the love that you have loved me may be in them and I in them. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? He's saying the love that you had for me and have for me, now I extend to you and I in them and them. And I I mean, it's just, it's, it's beyond our understanding what you guys are part of. You know, becoming a Christian isn't just about, yay, my sins are forgiven. That's such, a, that's such a pathetic gospel. That's such a weak gospel. That's one little facet. But unfortunately, that's all people ever hear. The gospel is your sins are forgiven. Congratulations, you don't have to go to hell. Sweet, that's cool. But that's not exciting. That's relieving. The gospel is so much more than your sins are forgiven. The gospel, one facet of it is that you are now baptized into union with Christ and the eternal union of the Godhead, that you are part of that union, that you now have access to the Father and to the Son. I mean, that's incredible, this oneness that we have as believers. We don't even understand what we've been saved into. It's incredible. And listen to me. The only way you're ever going to get it and realize it and enjoy it is through the vehicle of the local church. There is something to the oneness of God that you will not experience aside from the hardship of community in the local church. You notice Paul uses the word maintain. He says, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, verse three, to maintain the unity of the spirit. You know what maintenance means? It means stuff breaks. It's frustrating, isn't it? We just shelled out so much money to fix our car. We had to put tires on it, and then it was like, after we put tires on it, then we found out our steering wheel fluid thing broke, and so we had to fix that, and there was some belt that broke, and we had to fix that, and my brakes on my other car. It's just a constant, constant maintenance. Paul is saying that this unity in the church, although it's yours in eternity, although it's, 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 it's perfect in, in the spiritual dimension in this moment that you're in. It needs maintenance. It's hard. Okay, we have to just be honest about the elephant in the room, that church is hard. I mean, my entire growing up, I just remember leaving churches, people leaving churches, people mad at my parents, my parents mad at people, whatever, over totally understandable things. Arguments, fights, frustrations. That is community. That's how we knock the edges off. That's how God sanctifies. That's how we learn to grow is through the hardship of community. The fact that it's, it's, it's a call to maintain it means that it's hard. Look at the words he says. He says, be gentle and patient. What does that imply? If you have to be gentle and patient, it means that Christians are frustrating. <laughs> Sheep bite, don't they? They bite. I mean, it's, it's not like as bad as a wolf or something. It's kind of more like a, you know, like a denture thing. They bite, and then they bite and twist sometimes. Trust me, I'm a pastor, man. They love to bite pastors. They bite. So, so, so the call to be gentle and patient is an implication that this church thing is hard. It's hard. 
It's the call is to, it's a, he says to bear with one another in love. You know what that implies? It means it's going to cost you something. It means it's going to be burdensome. Man, people don't like that. That's why people go to mega churches. I'm not saying anything wrong with mega churches inherently, but that's why people go to a church where they never have to be close to anybody. Because if you're close to somebody, they might hurt you. And if you're close to someone, they're going to drive you crazy. And they bug you and you can't leave because they're, they're, you know, you're in a small group with them. It's way easier to go somewhere and sit and listen to teaching. But guys, can I just be honest with you? That's not church. You can listen to podcasts. That's not church. That's God's word. Church is when you actually interact with each other, when you actually frustrate, as Hebrews says, stir up each other. That's church. If you're not mad at somebody here, you're probably not doing church. If there isn't someone in this room that drives you crazy yet, either you're brand new, you haven't been here long enough, or you're not doing church. It's just, it just happens. I used to be the small group manager at my last year. It was a big church, and I was the guy that had to babysit all the small groups. Man, they won't talk to me. They hate me. We're not friends anymore. Like, what? <laughs> Welcome to community. That's church. I hope you like it, okay? I mean, Paul is trying to prepare these guys for the reality of that this is what it is. But, no, it sounds terrible. You're like, why would I want to do that? Because there is an eternal reality that you can realize only through the hardship of community. And that is the eternal love that God had in the Godhead before he even created the universe. It's really cool. It's worth the pinch points. It's worth the friction. Trust me. We are united in the spirit. The second, I'm part, sorry, the fourth, the fourth, I'm dyslexic. The fourth mark of a biblical church is that a biblical church expands the borders of Christ's kingdom. In other words, we are ambassadors spilling over the peace of Christ's rule into the unredeemed spaces of this world. Look at verse 7. This is such a cool section, but it's a little complicated, so don't check out on me. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, that's not the measure, that's not saving grace, that's sanctifying grace. There's a difference. It's not like um, some of us have more of a measure of grace than others. But when it comes to the sanctifying grace, uh, that's what he's talking about. Verse 8, therefore it says, he's about to quote the psalmist here in regards to Christ. He says, therefore it says, when he, being Jesus, ascended on high, he led host He led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might, listen, fill all things. Now, that's a complex passage. Let me just try to break it down here for you. What Paul is doing is he's pulling an Old Testament picture in order to communicate to us, the church, what the church actually is and how it actually functions. He's drawing on this picture of a king who goes out to war, okay? And this, in the context of the psalm that he's quoting, a king goes out to war, he goes to war, and ultimately is victorious. And what is that referring to? It's referring to Christ, his conquering of sin and death. And as he's victorious, what is the first thing he does? He plunders all the riches of the, the enemy, he releases all the captives, and then he sets them all in a long parade and he marches his way back into the city while there is great procession and rejoicing. And then when he gets back, he sets the captives free and he begins handing out the gifts, the spoils of war. Isn't that cool? Paul is taking that picture and he's saying that's what happened when the church was born. 
Jesus, our champion, the champion of our faith, the hero of our faith, conquered, slayed the dragon, crushed the head of the snake, conquered sin, conquered death, didn't stay in the grave, rose three days later. Not only did he resurrect in a new model body, but then he actually went to the right hand of the Father, took his seat of power over the universe, and then what did he do? He sent the Holy Spirit with gifts. But what are the gifts for? Are the gifts for us to enjoy? Or are the gifts for each other? They're for each other. The Holy Spirit was sent because Christ sent him. The Holy Spirit was sent with the gifts for the body so that the body could use the gifts for one another. He set the captives free. Isn't that cool? Isn't that a cool passage? The point here is that Jesus is on his throne, his enemies are defeated, and listen to this, the church is the primary expression of his kingdom rule on this earth. You ever wonder, I asked in the beginning, why did Jesus go to heaven? Why did he, why did he go and, and take his seat? It's called the session, the session of Christ. Why did he take his seat in heaven? Why didn't he stay here? I mean, he's our guy, he's our commander, he's our savior, he's our champion, he's our everything. Why isn't he here? The answer is because he needed to be in the position of rule, the position of sending, the position of control of everything. He sent the Spirit to be his mind, as we'll, we'll get into. The point is, is that through the way that we allow Christ to rule our church and our lives individually, that begins to spill out into the community around us. And that's, man, so much my prayer for this year. My prayer is that we would go so deep here in what it looks like to be fully surrendered to the rule and reign of Christ who is on the throne now, praying for you, making intercession for you, ruling and reigning now, that we'd be so tuned into his current administration that it would just be released on this community in the unredeemed spaces of Grants Pass. Man, Dana Hankins said it on there. It was so brilliant. So glad it made it on the video. She's like, you know, you come to this town, and it looks so serene, and you come down I-5, and you look at the mountains. You're like, what a cute town. Totally cute, right? We love Grants Pass. It's amazing. I love it here. But she said it right, man. You look down the alleyways, and you start looking under the covers, and you're like, dang, there is some pain here, man. We got massive amounts of homelessness, massive amounts of drug addiction, systemic poverty, systemic sin, kids without dads, homelessness, teen homelessness, drug addiction. I mean, it's just, it's just so much. Our job as Christians is to be ambassadors of the peace and the rule of Christ that we would ex export that into the broken places of this world. How do we do that? Well, it's not church programming. It's you guys. It's where has God shown favor? Where has God given you an inroad into brokenness, into hurt, into pain? Where has God given you an inroad into somebody that is not a believer? And how can you export and be an ambassador of the gospel into their life? How can you bring the rule of Christ and the peace that comes with it into the brokenness of their life? Every single one of us in here have relationships like that. Some of you, it's in your family. Some of it's your brother. Some of it's your parents. Some of it's your kids. Some of it's your boss, some of it's your coworkers. They are the unredeemed spaces of Grant's past. And we are to bring the gospel, which is the kingdom rule of Christ, into those unredeemed spaces. Isn't that exciting? That's the picture that Paul is trying to paint here of the local church. Jesus has won, and he has gifts. And those gifts are to be spent on the world that we're trying to reach. Number five. 
Fifth mark of a biblical church. This is so important, so please listen. A biblical church has Christ as its head. A biblical church has Christ as its head. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Notice, it, notice what it doesn't say. Can I just point this out? It doesn't say he gave the lead pastor. That's not what it says. It says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. There's a multiplicity here. There's a plurality. There's a diversity. For the reason, and we'll get into this more, for the reason to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up what? The body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now listen to this. This is such a weird statement until you understand it. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 15, skip down to 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. I think this is one of the least preached on, least focused on realities of church in Christianity, especially in the West. And that is that, listen, this church has one lead pastor, and it is not me. It's Christ. The church has one head. That head is Christ. And the maturity of the church is gauged on whether or not it is growing up into that head, into conformity and submission to that head. Maturity for the church is how much we are submitted to the rule of Christ. He is the head. It's really interesting, this picture of the body, it doesn't come up anywhere else in the Old Testament. Almost every, actually every other picture that the New Testament authors use of the church, um, a building, a vine, you name it, those were all Old Testament imagery. And they were all used to describe Israel, and then they were recycled and reused to describe the church. Not this one. The idea of the body is exclusive to the New Testament. Paul picks it up, and he uses it exclusively to describe for us, to, to, to paint a picture in our heads of what the church is supposed to look like. The church is supposed to look like a head, which is Christ, and a body. Now, if you take my head from my body, how, 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 how efficient is my body? It's not at all. In fact, my body can't live without my head. You know, Paul wasn't, he wasn't a doctor, but I'm pretty sure he understood that. Pretty sure he understood the will and the cognition and all that came from the, the head, the mind. So the head is, is ultimately what controls the body. That means the body is ultimately submissive to the head. That means the head is in control. Now look at what he says in verse 13. He says, you're to equip the saints, yada, yada, until we attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What in the world is that talk, talking about? It says to grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ. Here's the picture, okay? Here's the picture. The picture is that Christ as the head is perfect. And our body, this is kind of almost comical, the picture in your head, our body is sort of small and shriveled and developing. The body. The body isn't quite in equally yoked to the head. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, no, I'm not going to make a joke. You know, I've met some people that had pretty big heads. Yeah. Anyways, um, the, the head is not equally yoked to the body. Paul's call is for the body, that's you and I, to grow up to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, to grow up to, the, to where we fit the head so that he and us are equally yoked 
so that we're actually able to carry out what his mind wills. Some of you are in a stage of life where you're realizing that what your mind wills, your body will no longer carry out. Isn't that frustrating? And in my head, I could still climb up that mountain, but when I get to that mountain, my body is not really there. The goal of the church is that we would grow up together as one organism to where we can actually carry out the will and the desire of the head, which is Christ, his mission. That means we gotta grow up. You know, I used to read that passage and it says to become mature, mature into mature manhood. And again, my Western mind, I went, oh, that's talking to me. I need to grow up. I need to become a mature man in Christ. Uh, that may be true, but that's not what this is saying. This is saying the church needs to grow up. We as a church need to grow up together so that we fit the head. The church, listen to this, the church is the continuation of the physical earthly ministry of Christ. You know, I asked the question earlier, like, why in the world did Jesus leave? Well, he didn't. He didn't. How could Jesus possibly say it was better for him to go? How could he possibly say that we were going to do greater things than he did? Because he didn't really leave. He left, his physicality left. But his work continues through his, what? His body. We are the continuation of Christ's earthly ministry. Have you ever thought about it that way? We are the legs of his mind. We carry out. That's why, listen to this, this is so cool. Acts chapter 1, in the first book, Luke says, I wrote all that Christ began, speaking of the book of Luke, all that Christ began to do and teach. That means that Jesus is still working, but he's working, his mind is working through his body, and that's us. What a privilege that we have to be the body. But listen, we're only healthy if we're connected to the head, and we're only, we're only healthy if we're actually carrying out the will of the head. Have you ever seen somebody who's paralyzed? Their body is non-responsive to their brain. When the church is not connected to the head, the church is paralyzed. It is ineffectual, ineffective. It's dead. Our job is to connect and tune into the will of the head. And how do we do that? One of the most important ways is through his word. That we see what he has said. That's why we teach expository preaching here. It's not about, let's get up and talk about what we feel like is interesting. Let's get up and teach the Bible. Because this is the expression of God's mind. And we are the body of his mind. Does that make sense? So, I'm going to say something. I'm going to say it very forcefully because I really want you guys to remember this. If I ever, ever refer to myself as the lead pastor, I want you to tell me, Sam, don't ever do that again. Now, there's plenty of pastors in the city that call themselves lead pastor. I completely understand the functionality of that. I'm not saying they're heretics. I'm not saying they're, they're even necessarily wrong. I'm saying that at this church, we have one lead pastor. And who is that lead pastor? Matt Dalby. No, I'm just kidding. No, that was a joke. We have one lead pastor. That pastor is Christ. So what does that make me? I'm just an under-shepherd. I am one of what will eventually be more under-shepherds. I don't see lead pastor in the New Testament. I don't see it. Oh, what about Peter? I still don't see it. It's not there. Look at the Old Testament. Every time Israel would pick a king, it went pretty bad. Every time there was a desire to put a person in the seat, it went bad. Jesus came because he was the vine. He's the vine. He's the vine. 
So our job as a church is not to, to replace and have a leader. The Catholics are just so wrong on this. They're so wrong on this. We love them, but they're so wrong. There was never intended to be a pope. Christ is the only pope. Amen. Amen. None of y'all are Catholics, so I'm not offending anybody. So wrong. It's a misinterpretation of so many passages. But can I say this too? The Catholics aren't the only ones that got it wrong. The Protestant evangelical church has got it wrong too, and that is because they keep elevating individuals into the position of chief shepherd, and it's wrecking people because every time one of them has a stinking affair or cheats on the books or does something stupid, everyone in that church is wrecked because that person never should have been the chief shepherd. Amen. Ever. That was never the intention. A, a lead pastor should be able to be removed, and the church should be able to continue on. Is it hurt? Of course. So what that means for us, and I'll get into this a little bit more later, is that, is that this church, governmentally, and we're actually going to do a series on this so we understand what we mean, this is a church that will be plurality of elder-led. It, it means that, that, that I don't have any more say than, than any of the other leaders, the elders. It, it needs to be, because our goal is not to have any one person have their way. Our goal is to say, Christ, what is your head's will, and how do we as a body carry that out? And that means prayer and humility and submission and surrender and a lot of that. A lot of friction, probably. Trust me, it'd be easier for me to just do what I wanted to do. But that's not healthy and it's not biblical. The Moses model, Moses is in charge, I just think it's flat on its head, unbiblical. One man should never have control of these things. One last point and we'll wrap up. A biblical church, number six, a biblical church builds itself up through the gifting of the body's parts. Again, I don't know how we miss this in evangelicalism. I don't know how this passage doesn't get talked about more, but it just doesn't. Look at verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. You notice the diversity of that. Okay, they're all different. That means there's only one you in the body. There's only one person like you that has the diversity of the gifts that you have and you're needed. Verse 12, he gave them, now Paul's talking about church leadership here, by the way. When he says apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, he's talking about the plurality of the church leadership. So uh, in our context, that's probably the people that are either elders or on staff. What is their job? Their job is said in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Isn't that interesting? See, we think it's the ministry leader's job, it's the paid pastor's job to do the ministry. And it's our job to be ministered too, right? Yeah, we'll help with kids and we'll set up a chair, you know, that's fine. That's actually not biblical. It's not biblical. My job, any leader's job in the church, is to equip you guys so that you can do the ministry. Isn't that interesting? It completely flips on its head the way that you think about ministry. So if all I'm doing is just sort of like preaching sermons so people have to come listen to me preach, then that's actually not what Paul said to do. The, the, the calling is to equip you guys to do the ministry. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but it's something we gotta aim at. It's something we gotta think about, something we gotta talk about. The idea in the New Testament is completely unique, and that is the idea of the kingdom of priests. In the Old Testament, only a few, only one tribe out of the 12 was allowed to go into the holy place. You know that? Who was it? Levites, right? The Levites. Levi, Levi, Levites. Uh, out of that tribe, only a very few 
we're actually able to go into the holy place. In the New Testament, when Peter says something as earth-shattering and profound as you are a kingdom of priests, do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that every single one of you, every single member in the body now has access and the ability to go into the place of community, the place of connection with the Lord, and the place of ministry. The, the, the priest would go in for one to make atonement and for two to make intercession. That means that every single believer has a part to play as a priest. That means that really just because, you know, this person gets paid to do ministry and this person has a different job, everyone here is a priest. Everyone here is technically supposed to be in ministry. That's what a healthy church looks like. Verse 13, we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, till we all, till we all, notice that word, all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. The call is that we would all engage in our giftings, in our unique gifts that Christ gave us for the purpose of edifying the body in totality. Somehow we flip that around. Somehow as Christians we have thought, you know, my part to play is just to sit and listen. I'm not saying everybody has the gift of teaching. That's certainly not true. I'm not saying everybody has the gift, uh, you know, of prophecy. I'm not, but everybody has a gift. And that gift is ministry. And that gift needs to be activated and accessed. In order for this church to grow, those gifts need to be utilized. They need to be discovered. They need to be realized. And they need to be unleashed. They need to be spirit-filled. They need to be surrendered. And, and maybe, maybe some of you guys don't even know what those gifts are. And so that's why next week we're going to spend time in 1 Corinthians 12, and we're going to talk about what the gifts are. Uh, you know, and I'm hoping that some of us will be activated in that, in our spiritual gifts, because God's intent for the church was that it would build itself up by the gifts in love for the purpose that we would grow up to the measure of the stature of Christ. You know, we complicate church a lot, don't we? We complicate it because we're, we're trying to, to think of something that some other church hasn't done already. It's like, what's no church in town doing? We're the church that stands on our head. Check us out. No one's ever done that, you know. <laughs> Stupid, man. Like, th this... This was written 2,000 years ago. Like we're doing the same thing. It's very simple. We are the body of Christ. We carry out his will. We carry out his mission, which is to make disciples, to bring his kingdom in, into the world. We do it by putting up with each other. Not just putting up with each other, but loving each other through hard things, letting the friction happen, forgiving each other, offending each other, and then saying, hey, you know what? We're still family. Through unity, through accessing our gifts, the gifts are not given for ourselves. They were given, Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians. The gifts were given that we might minister to each other, build each other up. There's a temptation that you have in your flesh. That temptation is to say, when you go to church, you know, who's talking to me? Who's talking to me? Who's interacting with me? Who likes me? Who wants me to be part of their thing? And I get that. That's human nature. But when you say that, you're, you're not realizing that you're actually part of the body. When you come through the doors, you think, who can I go talk to? Who can go pray for? Who can I go listen to? Who can I go speak gospel to? Who in this church needs me to come into their life and begin a relationship with them? That's what it looks like to be an active member, an active participant of the body. Can you imagine if every Christian in this country right now was active in their faith, active in the body, active in body life? Churches would be so healthy 
they would be so they would just be bursting at the seams of life. That's my prayer for this church. My prayer is that we as a body would be activated. So I'm going to ask you guys to join me in praying for six things this week. And if anybody would be willing, I know it's Memorial Day weekend, but Monday, tomorrow, if you're up for it, it's no judgment, I think it would be really cool if we fasted as a church tomorrow. And we said, we're going to fast Monday, and we're going to pray these six things over our church. We're going to pray and beg the Lord that he would do these realities in our church. So if you want to join me in that, or if there's a better day that works for you this week, that's fine. If you really like food, I get it. <clears throat> that was a joke. Six things that we can pray for. Number one, pray that his position would be solidified as the head of this church. Pray that that, from, that, that becomes the culture at our church, that Christ is the head. So over the next couple months, uh, I'm going to be doing work with some elder candidates so that we can begin to establish local elders. And that local elder governing board, whatever you want to call it, will, will stand in the place of, of seeking the Lord as our head and shepherding this group, this body. That's really exciting. But we need to pray that the identity of this church would always be that he is our head. He is our lead pastor. He is our shepherd. And that means we got to pray a lot, man. It means we've got to ask him what he thinks, what he wants to do. Instead of just being like, I've got an idea, let's do that. Let's seek him. Okay, so that's the first thing, that his position would be solidified. Number two, we're going to pray that his church will be sanctified. And what I mean by that is set apart for his purposes. In the temple, they would have vessels that were used for the ceremonial things, the atonement, the sacrifices, and those were sanctified, and they had to be continually sanctified. That just means that they were set apart for one purpose, and that was the use in the temple. Okay, that's why it was such a big deal when uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came along, and they, you know, took those vessels and used them for other things. Okay, so you as a church, we as a church, my prayer is that we would be sanctified, that we would be set apart, that we would see the life, the blood flowing through our veins, the, the air in our lungs, the voices that we've been given, the experiences that we have, the, the position and influence that we have in our community and our families, that we would see all of that as being set apart for the mission of Christ. That we would be a church that lives open-handed. Do you understand what I mean by that? It's like, Lord, everything you've given us is just here. It's open. Snatch it when you want. Churches suck at that, man. They just do. They get so territorial. They start clamoring to keep what they've, been, what they've built, what they've gained. My prayer has always been that we would be a church that says, whatever, God, whatever you want to take, whoever you want to send, whatever you want to do, we just, we're open-handed. Take it. Number three, would you pray that his word would be internalized? That we would be people in these uncertain times that have our feet standing on the gospel. Did you notice, by the way, I didn't get into it because I ran out of time, but the result of maturing is that we would not be blown around by every wind of doctrine, but that we would be able to speak the truth in love? Boy, that's something we need so bad right now. As Christians in this moment, this politically polarized moment, this uncertain moment, we need to be those that have our feet standing on what we know to be true and have enough confidence and love and compassion that we can speak the gospel in a loving way. Man, that's just amazing. So I, I just want us to pray that his word would be internalized. Fourthly, pray that his body would be utilized. Praying that God would unleash people in this church, into, I said it on the video, into roles of elders and deacons and people with gifts of prophecy and discernment and helps and all of these different areas that this body needs. 
I'm not just necessarily talking about we need a guy to set up a chair, we need a guy to run a slide. That's helpful too. But I'm talking about the spiritual gifts, drawing from your spiritual riches. Pray that we would be unleashing that, that we would be utilizing the body. Fifthly, pray that his unity would be prioritized. That we can get through things. That we don't have to see people leave because we offended each other. That we can forgive each other. That we can be one. That we can act like what we are. And then lastly, and of course, most obviously, pray that his glory would be magnified. I just want to be a church that shows off Christ. That people would just see the greatness of Christ through this church. So in case you were writing those down, pray that his position would be solidified, that his church would be sanctified, that his word would be internalized, that his body would be utilized, his unity would be prioritized, and his glory would be magnified. Yes, those all end with the same thing. Thank you very much. Took me a while to do that, so. Would you guys stand with me? God, thank you so much for the grace and the favor that you've shown over this year. Thank you so much, Lord, for the people that you've brought. That truly has been the greatest joy to get to know these people and to begin this journey of ministry together. Lord, we just want to be faithful. We want to be faithful to what you have in mind for this church. We want to see, Lord, each of these people growing and thriving in their life as they assume their role as this single organism that you call a church. And Lord, we need your help. We need your spirit to guide us and lead us. We want to be a spirit-filled church. Lord, so for each and every member in here this morning, I pray that they would grow in the richness of the gospel. That they would grow to know you better. Help us to understand as a church, Lord, how we can set the table better for the body's gifts to be utilized. I don't even know exactly what that looks like, Lord, but I pray that you would give vision there. I pray, Lord, for the, for the men that you have in store for this, this plurality of elders here, God, that you would begin to raise them up. Lord, make it clear who those are. God, I pray for this church that we would be submitted to one head, one lead pastor, you, Jesus that we would be open-handed, ready and willing to give everything you might ask of us. So Father, just use us, we pray. We pray for every church in this city. We are one with them. We pray that you would use every church in this city to accomplish your purposes. We pray for revival in Grants Pass. We pray it wouldn't just come through us because then we'd think it was about us. We pray for revival to happen in this city regardless of where it comes. We pray, Lord, that we just would get to be part of it. We pray for new salvation. We pray for new discipleship. We pray for new opportunities, God, to give all the resources and riches you've given us. We thank you for Ephesians 4. We pray we would be an Ephesians 4 church. God, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.